Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes, including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our review of Day 8 of the trial and began our look at Day 9 with the in-camera testimony of Mark Tinsley. In this installment, we continue our coverage of Tinsley's testimony. That's all coming up right after the break. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It is the morning of February 6th, 2023, day 9 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor Creighton Waters began his questioning of Mark Tinsley, the lawyer who represented the family of Mallory Beach in their claim for Beach's wrongful death against the Murdoch family. Mr. Tinsley's testimony was part of an in-camera hearing before Judge Clifton Newman, so that the court may determine the admissibility of evidence of the defendant's financial crimes in his murder trial. Waters' final questions of our previous installment were in reference to Mark Tinsley's assessment of Murdoch's insurance coverage as it would relate to the Beach case. The witness responded that his opinion was that Murdoch had virtually no relevant insurance coverage and that the Beach family was seeking a sizable claim against the Murdoch family. As we begin today, Prosecutor Waters continues to question Mr. Tinsley about his interaction with the defendant as the witness pursued the claim on behalf of the Beach family. In August of 2019, uh, is there a particular conference that those uh, in your line of work go to? It used to be called the Trial Lawyers Conference. Yeah, it's in Hilton Head, and and I went in 2019 of August. Did you see the defendant there? I did. And did you have a conversation with him about the boat case? I did. All right. Can you relate that conversation to the court, please? Yeah, I think, I'm not 100% certain that it was a fundraiser, either for Mr. Harpootlian or it was a fundraiser for Lindsey Graham. Uh, as you come into the hotel, there's a there's a gathering area. It's in the evening before everyone goes to dinner, or it's immediately after. I'm not 100% certain. Uh, but the room's full of lawyers, and Alex sees me, and he comes across, and he gets up close in my face and says, Hey, Bo, what's this I'm hearing about what you're saying? I thought we were friends. And I replied, Alex, we are friends. Uh, if you don't think I can burn your house down, that I'm not doing everything and I'm not going to do everything, you're wrong. You need to settle this case. And so what was the point of that conversation? What, what was, uh, if you can explain to the court what y'all were talking about, what, what, is, what is Alec upset to as you understood it? That he was going to have to pay was, was what he was hearing. That's what it was. The point of it was we're friends. I took it as he tried to intimidate me. He didn't intimidate me and sort of bully me into backing off. Um, was there a uh, mediation in September of 2019? There was. No, yeah. 20. 
September of 20. 20. Before we get there, we move into uh, early March of 2020, and we probably all know the answer to this, but what happened in March of 2020 that kind of changed the world? COVID. Court shut down. And did that have an effect on slowing down things in the court systems? It, it definitely stopped the court system. We continued to take some depositions, pr primarily law enforcement. It was at the scene early on, and then ultimately when everything finally shut down, I'm not sure if it's if it's May or April when, you know, we were sort of confined to our offices. Did you, uh, during the course of COVID, uh, take the opportunity to sort of present the case to a mock jury to get an, an idea of how that jury might respond? I did. Right. And were the results very favorable for your client and not favorable for Alec? They were. Did you ultimately communicate that fact to the defense? I did. Had you come into possession of some social media videos that uh, you believe would be very uh, advantageous to proving your case and achieving a large recovery? I did, and I shared those with John Tiller. Creighton Waters retrieves a document and brings it to Mr. Tinsley for review before displaying it on the monitor for the witness and the judge. We'll show you what's been marked as Exhibit 401, State's Exhibit 401, and see if you recognize that document. I did. I do. All right. And what is that document? Uh, it's a screenshot of text messages uh, between myself and Tabor Vox. Tabor is assisting me in the boat crash case. All right. There's a reference here at the top. They damn sure aren't a placeholder or venue defendant, but they were hoping so. And uh, then you respond about not walking, just taking five or a day and not walking away from someone's judgment proof. Is that correct? That's that's right. And I'm sure the court is aware, but just very quickly, what, what are you, what's being said there about Alec not being just a placeholder or venue defendant? So there, there are a couple of things going on here. In October of 20, I filed a motion to compel. Alec said he was broke. He doesn't have any money. He may be able to cobble together some amount of money, but he's broke. And, and I didn't believe it. So I filed a motion to compel. And about a week after I'd filed that motion to compel, uh, Danny Henderson, who again was Alec's personal lawyer, came to my partner, said he couldn't believe that we were going after Alec personally. It was a line in the sand that I had crossed, a number of things like that. So that's what this conversation is about. And by November, this is I think November of 2020, the Beach family, they want accountability. They want a pound of flesh and whatever that's going to be, it's only going to be through a jury or through a substantial settlement. All right, well, let me back up and we'll get to the motion to compel in a second. You mentioned that you had uh, been told by the defense essentially that Alec had no money, correct? He's broke. Right. Did they say he could cobble together a certain amount? I thought he could cobble together a million dollars. A million dollars. And did you believe that that was accurate? It couldn't have been. All right, and why did you not believe that that was accurate? Well, when you practice law, not necessarily with, uh, meaning in the same case, but, but when you go to a roster meeting, uh, if there were 50 cases on the roster in Hampton, Ellick may have had 50 or 60 of those percent of those cases. And so they're actively being settled. Uh, I know that he's actively making money, and you just can't possibly be broke if you're making money, not the way he was making money. And then beyond that, I'm, I mean, my clients have known Ellick and his family forever, and so their perspective is that there's generational wealth as well. Did you, uh, was $1 million going to be enough money from your client's perspective to settle this case? It, it, it wasn't enough from, from my perspective. Okay. I can explain that if you want. Yes, please. Yeah. 
So one of the things that I didn't appreciate, that I came to appreciate by this point in time was, is that, and it may not make a whole lot of sense, but if I, if I told a lawyer who, do, who does what I do that I'd settled the case, there's a lot of speculation because I've had cases with the firm and members of the firm are my friends uh, that somehow there's a fix on. I think for a long time Ellick thought there was a fix on, that, that he was just a placeholder, a venue defendant. And so if I, if I told you I've settled the case, and then the next question would be, what did, you, what did you settle it for? I said, well, I took the insurance company. If you knew what I know uh, and what plaintiff's lawyers know, you'd think, well, there was a fix. The only reason I would take it is because it was a fix. I didn't see a substantial difference between that number and a million dollars. And so I thought that if you told 10 lawyers who were knowledgeable about these kinds of matters, I took a million dollars from Ellick, who from everyone's perspective has lots of money, is making piles of money, they would think that it was a fix. So before we even get to what's a fair amount, what, what should you take, you know, I, the analogy I use with my clients is it's kind of like that show Deal or No Deal. You may have the million dollars suitcase or you may have a zero suitcase, and, but it's not until there's a significant enough offer that you could do worse that you should settle a case, any case. And so at a million dollars, it just wasn't, there wasn't any risk to them that would prompt me to recommend them to take it. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Prosecutor Creighton Waters moves on to ask Mr. Tinsley about his response to Alex Murdoch's attorneys when they asserted that the defendant had no appreciable assets. Did you uh, make any sort of formal or informal offer to them that involved the real property as well as any sort of payment plan? When I was told that Alec was broke, I offered him a payment plan. Sometimes when you settle cases, medical malpractice cases, for instance, with the JUA, they will make payments. Uh, I offered to, for him to sign over Moselle and the beach house, open his books to see that he was broke, and, and then work out a payment plan on the balance. So when you say, okay, you say he's broke, I don't believe that. Show me the books to prove that. What was your response from, the, uh, from Alex's defense? Well, it was sort of stonewalling uh, to begin with. I mean, ultimately, I got a formal response, which was an objection that prompted the motion to compel in October of 2020. Creighton Waters presents Mr. Tinsley with another document. I'll show you what's been marked as States 402. See if you recognize this document. Yeah. So th this is my motion to compel, which attaches um, Ellick's responses to the interrogatories and request for production. All right. And when was this filed? October 16, 2020. All right. All right. I'm going to put uh, Exhibit B to this motion, your motion to compel, up on the screen and zoom it in a little bit. And in part, was this the objection to one of your uh, supplemental interrogatories about what you're talking about, about opening the books? Correct. 
And if you would, tell me what your interrogatory was asking for in number one, please. Well, in, in as broad terms as... Well, let's just read it real quick. Please. All right. Read List all checking and or savings accounts, including credit union accounts, certificates of deposit, 401k accounts, uh, SEP accounts, IRA maintained by you, IRAs maintained by you individually and or jointly with any others or any other accounts over which you had signature authority in any capacity regardless of whether or not the account or accounts have been closed from February 2019 to present. Right. And ultimately, what was the uh, Alex Defense's response to that, General? You have to read that, but just tell me. It was overly broad, unduly burdensome, and irrelevant. Okay. And so ultimately, you filed a motion to compel. Is that correct? That's correct. And the idea was, if you say you're broke, show me the books, and, to, and they had refused to with the response to this interrogatory, as well as others. Is that correct? Correct. Who, let me ask you this. Who were his attorneys in, in the boat case, Alex's attorneys? So his personal attorney, as I've said, was Danny Henderson, uh, who is also a partner or shareholder with PMPD. Progressive had hired John Tiller, and John Tiller uh, was a lawyer out of Charleston. He was mainly involved. At one point, there was Amy Bauer who was an associate working with John Tiller and then Elliot Condon ultimately. I think Amy left in February of 21, and by then I think uh, Elliot Condon had been hired and was assisting John Tiller. Uh, Mr. Henderson is a partner in PMPED. He was also actively helping Alec or representing Alec in this case. Is he, that correct? He was. And he's the one that initially had brought you the insurance coverages for Alec to get you a, a chance to look at them and see what might be available, correct? That's right. As this motion to compel gets filed, uh, what, if anything, happened with the uh, sort of the communications between your side and the defense side as we moved into the months uh, following uh, the filing of that motion to compel? We all already saw the one text. What else is going on as well? Well, there's, there's a lot of grumbling and, and sort of shock that I'm actually going to hold Alec personally responsible. Not so much with me, but like I mentioned, about a week after this, Danny Henderson contacts my partner. There were a number of times when Tabor Vox was contacted. And so nobody says anything directly to me in, in terms of that regard, but that's, that's what's going on. It was, it was said to them because they knew it would then be told. When we look at the uh, particular interrogatory right here that you have filed a motion to compel on, and what are you trying to get? What, what information are you trying to get with that interrogatory? Well, again, like, like I, in my example of the deal or no deal, I mean, what I'm trying to do is put pressure. He doesn't want me to have access to his accounts. At the time, I think, it's because I, he'll see, I'll see how much money he actually is making and how much he has. And so, you know, that's what I'm trying to do is put pressure on him to force him into a settlement. He did, You don't want it disclosed? Here are the keys to the jail. You enter into an agreement and let's go settle the case. In the event, though, he doesn't settle in response to this, what information are you trying to get? Well, it's certainly not a number. Uh, it's certainly not Ellick's estimation of what his net value is. I wanted the accounts because I knew that the only way that he could be broke is that money had been hidden. And so I, I was going to look for and trace uh, or begin that process of doing that. All right. And explain that to the court. When you say that you knew that if he was, quote, broke, in your estimation, money had been hidden, 
And so, therefore, you were going to look for and trace that information. What do you mean by that? Why did you think money had been hidden? Well, they just, there just there wasn't any way he could be broke. I mean, I, you know, I, I know he's actively settling cases, some cases big cases, some cases small cases, but they stack up lots of cases. He's handling a lot of cases. So there, there's just no possibility that he could be broke by anyone's definition. If ultimately you had been successful in, in uh, getting a list of the defendant's accounts, what would have been your next step? Subpoenas. Of to, those to, accounts? Uh, to those institutions, yes. Were you already aware that defendant had an account at the Bank of America? I, I knew that he had a personal account with Bank of America. I knew he had an account with Palmetto State Bank. So I'm, I'm looking for the balance of accounts in terms of institutions and where else he had. But you didn't know how many accounts or what those balances were or anything like that? No, I, I had no idea. I had, you know, I knew he had multiple business entities. He had different LLCs. So I imagine there could be any combination of accounts out there and some which would not have even been in his name. Prosecutor Waters presents Mr. Tinsley with yet another document. After uh, the motion to compel is filed, I'm going to show you uh, what's been marked as States 403 and see if you recognize that document. Yes. Tell me what that is. Again, it's a um, screenshot of text messages between Tabervox and myself. All right, if you would, I've got this up on the screen. So can you tell me what's going on? And again, this is in April of 2021. Is that correct? It is. And tell me what's going on with this conversation right here and how it relates uh, to these issues. Yeah, so in August of 20, I found out I had cancer. And by November, I knew how bad it was. And so in January, I went to, uh, I had stage four cancer, and I went to Florida from the end of January till April the 15th on my first round of treatment. So I'd, I'd just come back shortly before I was diagnosed with cancer. John Tiller was also diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer. And there's some degree of urgency between John Tiller and myself to finish this case. While I was in Florida, I, I think I failed to mention that Greg uh, Parker's convenience store was also a defendant in the first case, but Greg Parker had done a number of things. And so before I leave, the issue is, is Greg Parker's moved to transfer venue to Beaufort County, uh, which is where I had done the mock jury, the focus group was in Beaufort County. And while I'm in Florida, things have changed in terms of what he's done that have changed my perspective because when I left, I intended to go to Beaufort. By the time I get back, I think I'm staying in Hampton. And so this conversation is, for the first time I've said, that I'm going to leave the case in Hampton if I think that Ellick has fixed the jury, that he's done anything to affect the, the outcome of the trial, that I'm going to sue Paul and Maggie the next day in Beaufort. And was that communicated to the defense? Absolutely. In the course of your investigation of this case, had you taken depositions of some of the officers who were involved in the investigation? We did. And at some point, was that uh, some issues arose that were uh, communicated to the state grand jury? You're the one that tells me everything happens there is secret, so you tell me, but... Uh, I'm asking you today. But yes. Ultimately, and while you were in Florida in March and April of 2021, uh, to your understanding, had the state grand jury reached out to you for information that you had uncovered in your investigation of the investigation into the boat crash? Correct. And, and specifically the handling of the criminal investigation by law enforcement. And the investigation into the investigation. Correct. Waters shows the witness two more sets of documents.
I'm going to show you what's been marked as states 404, 405, and 406 to your for this hearing and see if you recognize those, please. I do. All right. And tell me what that, what's going on here, please. There were a number of motions pending uh, in the boat crash case. They had been pending for some time. I mentioned one a moment ago, a motion to transfer venue. Uh, there were some motions to amend. Um, and, and so Judge Hall had set those motions to be heard. My recollection is May the 10th, 2021. So I'm, I'm back now. I got a couple weeks to sort of uh, get my wits about what's going on and the, the motions are scheduled to be heard. And that's May 11th, 20, uh, 21? It's, either, it's either the 10th or the, my recollection is the 10th. I know the emails say something different, but, and in the week before, I don't know that John Tiller always knew uh, how many chemotherapy treatments he was going to get or how long they were going to last until almost immediately before. So on, on or about May the 7th, John knew that the day of our hearing, his chemotherapy was going to run long and he wouldn't be done. And, and he had asked the judge to continue the motions, including the motion to compel. Looking at, again, we're now looking at um, states 405. What, uh, what was the judge's initial response to Mr. Tiller's uh, request to have that hearing continued based on his chemotherapy? That we were going forward as scheduled and that um, it says Mr. Condon, but it meant Ms. Condon uh, would be able to handle it. All right, looking at stage 406, um, what happened after that? Uh, ultimately what happened is, I, my recollection is I sent another email to the judge expressing that I, I really didn't have, they were, they were mainly my motions, they were, Parker's had some motions, but uh, that I didn't have a problem with continuing to accommodate Mr. Tiller and the judge finally set a, a status conference for, maybe it was May the 11th. You just said that initially Judge Hall um, did not want to continue the May 2021 hearing saying that there was another lawyer on for Alex's side that can handle it, correct? Correct. And then you kind of interceded and said that this, this will work and so it was rescheduled, is that correct? After a status conference. After the status conference, it was rescheduled at that status conference? It, it was rescheduled to uh, June 10th. June 10th? Creighton Waters again hands the witness two more documents. All right, I'm going to show you what's been marked as stage 407 and stage 408. And just quickly tell me if you generally recognize those documents. I do. One is an email from John Tiller saying that the judge's law clerk uh, said that the judge would be sending a message telling us that the hearing was going to be rescheduled to June 10th. The other is the email from the law clerk. All right, so the hearing that was initially in May that Judge Hall did not want to reschedule was rescheduled for June 10th, 2021. Is that correct? That is correct. And ultimately, that would be to hear a number of things, but one of the most significant things would be uh, your request for a list of all checking accounts uh, from Alec, all identification of all accounts. Is that correct? It, it, it is correct that that motion was going to be heard. And ultimately, when the murders happen, I'm going to show you what's been marked as Exhibit 408. What happened to that particular hearing that was scheduled that way? It was continued. Right. And is that what's reflected in this email right here? It, it is. And then Exhibit 407? It is. And with that, we bring to an end this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we continue our coverage of the in-camera testimony of Mark Tinsley. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts.
And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie and Tholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.